Which is why vaccines are so utterly fascinating, right? Because because that's literally putting uh, your faith in China in your arm. You are literally putting your body into the geopolitical arena and saying, you know what? I may not like them very much. It's not just their cheap smartphones that we love, but also it's the thing that saved my grandmother. Adam Tews is a professor at Columbia, and Matt Klein is a columnist at Barron's. We'll be talking about Matt's new book, Trade Wars or Class Wars, what Stalin and Mao learned from Hamilton, the strategic Shiraz Reserve, of course, climate tariffs, how Lenin explains the world, Keynes's Bancor, and a whole lot more. Welcome back, you two. Good to be here. Thanks very much. Hamilton and the German model versus Adam Smith and David Ricardo. What did the latter two get wrong and Hamilton get right? I'm not sure I would say Adam Smith got anything wrong per se. And talking about Ricardo versus Hamilton, I think one of the, the key distinctions here, and this is something that surprised me actually, because Ricardo's theory of comparative advantage is, is well known and often taught, but I don't think a lot of people read the original text, and I had not until I started doing research on this book. And one of the things that's interesting in reading it is that Ricardo makes a lot of specific sort of caveats and, and assumptions about the circumstances under which his argument makes sense. And that argument is, just to be clear, that for certain societies, you want to focus and specialize on one particular activity at the expense of all others, if that's the one where your investors can earn the highest profits. And that trade is beneficial because it allows each society to focus and the businesses in each society to focus on specializing in those activities. And Ricardo makes this point that, to be clear, this only works because businesses can't easily pick up and move, and you can't easily move workers from one society to another. And so the example that he talks about with Portugal and England, textiles versus wine, which you can think of as a high-tech industry of the time versus a low-tech but valuable agricultural product, as he says, if it were the case that the investors in England could do it, then obviously they'd want to just move the textiles in Portugal as well. They'd move the workers and the machines. Thankfully, they can't do that or they won't do that because you know, they're afraid of foreign investing. It's too dangerous and difficult. Hamilton's point was actually, like we probably can get them to do that if you make it attractive enough. And essentially, his point was that the idea that we specialize in what we're best in or have the businesses in a society specialize in what they're best in, you know, this isn't a fixed concept that at the time he was writing in the, in the 1780s, 1790s, the U.S. was predominantly an agricultural society. It's a very productive agricultural society, but that's what it, that's basically what it was. It, it was not a manufacturing society. It was very dependent on imports from Europe. And in fact, that was a deliberate policy of the British Empire and one of the reasons why the colonists were upset with the policies of the British crown. And his point was, look, like that's not inevitable. It happens to be the case. There were specific contingent circumstances that made that the case, but we can change those things. And his point was that, in fact, we can get Europeans to help us industrialize and modernize if we present them the opportunity of a really big, profitable market that they have to be able to put money in. And if they do that, then we can bet they can make money. And more importantly, we'll develop all the various skills and technologies and abilities that we didn't have before and make the economy more diversified. And that was something that Ricardo didn't really discuss in his model. And in fact, in Ricardo's model, he probably would have said it was something like a bad thing, because from the perspective of England, if you move all your production to Portugal, that's great for Portugal, but it's bad for England. And that's, I think, an important distinction. And you mentioned the German model. So Friedrich List was a German political dissident or an early nationalist who ended up being kicked out of the German state. I can't remember off the top of my head which one he was from at the time, but he comes to the United States and basically sees the U.S. as this model for what German unification should look like, starting with some sort of economic union and sort of big free trade block and, and a big domestic market and then leading to strong political union. And he, and he has a line basically saying, if you want to understand political economy, just look at the United States. That's really what you need to learn. And I think quite tellingly, a lot of other major successful industrialization stories were very consciously based on this experience. List wrote his book, and then you have an American, Ernest Apeshin Smith, who then goes to Japan shortly after the Meiji Restoration. And they're very consciously looking at both the German and the US experience. More controversially, you can look at what happened in in the Soviet Union with Stalin. I don't know to what extent they were thinking of Hamilton per se, but a lot of the arguments and logics fit in with you know how they were thinking about this stuff. And to the more the theme of this podcast, I think you can look at China's experience in the past several decades as being in a very similar view of like, we're a poor country that's not as technologically sophisticated, but if we create the conditions that foreign businesses from societies that have the technology we'd want to invest here and, and develop, then, then they'll make money and we'll make money. And it'll be better off in the long term. So I think that you can sort of see this long trend and, and the sort of traditional Ricardian view doesn't really account for any of these circumstances. 
Adam, feel free to jump in. I love the suggestion of a link between Stalin and Hamilton. I actually Google this. I, I don't think there is one. As best as I know, anyway. I don't, I'm, never, I'm sure if anyone had come across some stray references to Hamilton in the writings of Stalin, they would be a nugget that would be familiar to all of us. The line does run a little bit closer through list, though, because the German socialists of the late 19th century did spend quite a lot of time thinking about the possibilities of national economy. And then, of course, the crucial slogan for Stalin, which is at the time, of course, totally heretical, is socialism in one country. And the Marxist movement breaks apart over this idea because one of the fundamental legacies of mid-19th century Marxism was its anti-nationalism and it took liberal nationalism to be camp, to be nonsense. And the idea, therefore, that capitalism operated in national boxes struck Marxists as well. That's the thing that needs criticising Luxembourg and people like this, right? Flaming denunciations of the new discipline in Germany, universities of national economy, national economics. But they, of course, haven't yet seen the Soviet Union. They don't know what it would actually be to make a revolutionary state in the setting of international diplomacy, balance of power, global politics that we see in the 20s and 30s. And it's out of that, I think, that Stalin's vision is born plus the war economies. But but perversely and ironically, of course, the great shock for the communists of the 20s is that their icon, Imperial Germany, which is serving as your European stand-in for the Hamiltonian project, was defeated. And it was defeated by a globally articulated British-style capitalism. <laughs> um, and that's when Stalin says we must industrialise or be crushed. He's not thinking at that moment, I don't think, of Nazi Germany, which has not yet merged, but he's actually thinking of the oppressive power of a globe-spanning British capitalism, which, with its ability to drag the Americans in, had proved completely overwhelming in, in World War One. Just following up on that, like the, the theme of encirclement, which is one of the big motivators. There's a, a Yako Feigen, I remember, pointed me to some minutes of the Central Committee or what have you, where Stalin is explicitly talking about the language that the reason why you have to have a degree of industrialization and economic self-sufficiency is to protect yourself from the fact that everyone in the rest of the world is trying to potentially overturn your revolutionary state. The you... British in particular, though, let's be clear. Right. Like Stalin, Stalin, it isn't impersonal. And to that extent, there's another structural analogy to Hamilton, right? The British are Hamilton and List is likewise with List. What we're basically talking about, though, is how do insurgent projects of national autonomy assert themselves against global frames set by other powers, which historically the British were the, the power to do that. They're the first people to create a something like a kind of ironclad global hegemony. And, and so all projects after that, of course, have to be pitched against that real existing project in the same way as America becomes the target for that kind of national economic development project after 1945, because globalization has a name. There's a power attached to it. It doesn't just exist. Only liberal ideologues think it's flat, right? Everyone with a brain understands that it's hierarchical. And yes, one of, one of Trotsky's profound disillusionments with Stalin is that Stalin thinks of the British Empire as the main enemy, whereas Trotsky, I think, is quite clear about the fact that the hand behind the British stand the Americans, in fact, right? It is the transatlantic, North Atlantic nexus that is where power really resides, somewhere between the city of London and J.P. Morgan, broadly speaking, and it's a bit difficult to locate precisely where, <laughs> but definitely there, you know. So we've done Stalin, we've done Trotsky, we can't leave Lenin out of the picture. Matt, what does Lenin get right and wrong about the way capital moves around the world? The context here is, and we're talking about Lenin's, you know, theory of imperialism, which, you know, is heavily influenced by John Hobson, who is a British uh, economist and social critic writing about 15 years earlier. And, and Hobson is one of the major sort of inspirations or whatever for the thesis we have in our book. And Kenneth Austin, who is an economist at the Treasury Department in 2011, basically made the argument, as, as we did, that if you take his critique of imperialism, which was focused on the Western European colonial projects in Africa and in China, India, and so forth, and applying that to the modern world, I think you can draw a very clear line. Lenin took that and then extended it to explain World War One, and then what he believed was the inevitability of the triumph of global communism, which Obviously, it's not what happened, and there's some other issues there. Among the, the things that I would disagree with on, on Lenin's specific argument are, one, I don't think there's a really great evidence, and maybe Adam, you'll disagree with this, but that World War One was caused primarily by competition among the imperialist powers for 
colonies and the economic advantages associated with it. And I think it's fair to say that the sense of mercantile competition probably didn't help maintain relations between, say, Germany and Britain, but I don't think that was the main cause. And then more broadly, I, I don't think that World War One and imperialism more generally, even if you think those things are connected, that those are inevitable consequences of a capitalist system more broadly. And I think we can say that relatively reasonably because even though this sort of pattern has recurred in different forms over time since then. How is that inherently connected to a market-based economic system? It's not very clear to me. It's something that was fixed before in various ways without having to overturn a market-based society. You don't need to have a complete you know, Bolshevik revolution to fix this sort of issue. And the idea that it represents an inherent failure of capitalism, I don't think makes a lot of sense. And that's why a positive interpretation of our, of our view is that a lot of the solutions that we present are things that are pretty standard. You don't need to be like incredibly innovative. We know how to do this sort of thing. In fact, we've done things like this before. You're looking at post-World War II settlement in a lot of you know the Western democracies. So in that sense, that's, that is, I think, probably the, the biggest disagreement we would have with Lenin, that you can have the, the view that inequality in one society leads to you know, imbalances between them without saying that the solution is massive global revolution. And I would say that's sort of a, a moderate position compared to the, the alternative. But the thing I think to save Lenin from is the accusation of inevitability. And this is a fantastic conversation, but that is, I think that Lenin's view is more that contrary to the, in the end, rather liberal kind of glossy optimism of mid-19th century Marxism. And we have to remember, after all, that Communist Manifesto is written in 1848. So by the early 1900s, it's 50 years old. And what Lenin is saying is, look, a new, really terrifying possibility has opened up. Marx told us we would move smoothly through feudalism, bourgeoisie, and then the beer revolution, and then we'd end up in socialism. Ultimately, we could take communism. But what if something worse happens? What if you get this global competition, the frontiers close, the globe becomes a terrain in which capital argues, and then capital manages to hijack the power of militarized nation states, and then we slide over the cliff... He doesn't really provide a detailed account of the 1914 crisis. He doesn't need to. All he needs to say is we have the possibility of sliding over the cliff into something truly apocalyptic. And what's really striking about the Bolsheviks in 1915, 16, 17 is they become more and more apocalyptic. Bukharin is the same, later a moderate on the NEP, basically saying, look, what if the possibility of a total annihilating war, it's a bit like nuclear war in the Cold War era, just raises any possibility of positive progress? What then are the options for revolutionaries? Well, you can't take the Menshevik line of waiting for it to turn out for the best because capitalism isn't heading you that way. Potentially it does. It opens up the possibility for the socialization of much more sophisticated means of production. But it's now revealed to us the possibility that it could end up with the Kitcheners and the Ludendorffs in control. And they will literally essentially annihilate humanity with the means that they're ava available to them in ever larger wars. Ludendorff, we know, is planning... World War Three, Four, Five in the later stages of World War One. So Lenin isn't entirely off base here. And that's what warrants then something which 19th century Marxism had not licensed, which is voluntarist leaps, right? To say we have to go back to something closer to the utopian revolutionary tradition of the mid-19th century, which is essentially a coup. Mount a coup, take control of the situation. The much bigger point that you raise is, is it, what, is the, what is a plausible account of the relationship between capitalism and big war? And a lot of ink was spilt, especially by British historians in the 50s and 60s, trying to demonstrate that, in fact, the war didn't start the way Lenin predicted. And I think a lot of it is totally beside the point. Think of it this way instead. Think of it in terms of uneven and combined development, the analytic that Trotsky offers. Like, does global capitalism develop evenly? No, if it doesn't develop evenly, it shifts the balance of power. If the balance of power shifts, like Gilpin and other people argue, you have mounting tensions. All you then need is any casus belli, and somebody is going to see a strategic window opportunity and jump through it. And this is exactly what we see before 1914. The swing variable is Russia, right? Because no one knows which way it's going to go. It could be a basket case and head down 1905, defeat at the hands of the Japanese towards the civil war scenario of the 1920s. Everyone pitches in, you tear it apart, like people are prophesying for China 20 years earlier. Or it could harden, it could develop into a power state. And if the French pump enough capital into it to build those railways, it will be the all decisive military factor it becomes by 1945. And Germany has to align its strategy with regard to those two options. So frankly, does Japan as well. And on either end of the Russian Empire, you see these two powers going, 
Okay, do we jump now or do we get squashed later? In the Japanese case, you have to add in the uncertainties of China itself, which is, Hobson has these amazing passages in that book. I love the way that you've rehabilitated and repositioned Hobson because one of the most prescient things about Hobson is he says, the 20th century will be decided with what happens to China. And there are various options here. It could be hegemonized by the Japanese, in which case Japanese rule. It could be torn apart, in which case we have a kind of anarchy. Or imagine it consolidates under a strong national leadership, in which case it rules. So either way you go, this dominates the, the situation. Japan has to do that. China, Russia and the United States as a strategic antagonist. And it's basically a ribble wrapped in an enigma followed by a crossword puzzle or something. Like, how the hell do you do the math on those three most unpredictable powers in the 20th century. But driving that is an uneven logic of economic development combined with lending. So to my mind, the bit that's explosive is not Southwest Africa or Tanzania or even the Suez Canal. Those kind of struggles aren't large enough. But from the point of view of German military planners, we know flat out that the fundamental question they're benchmarking their planning against is how rapidly Russia's railway network develops. And it, the, the link is one to one immediate. You can see then Ludendorff is literally saying, right, if they build that railway, then they need to bring my military planning forward. I need two weeks less in my mobilization plan so as to be able to do the Schlieffen plan. The, the military industrial military economic entanglement is that direct. And yes, the uneven and combined nature of capitalist development is a prime driver. And I think that big work that the British, the Oxford School of Imperial History did in the 50s and 60s is the great license for historians of globalization to ignore the endogenous explanations of World War I, because that's what we really want to do. We want to make World War I a contingent event due to weird conservative men with funny hats, as Chris Clark puts it, rather than emerging out of the endogenous logic. And I, that's why I like Hobson, because I think Hobson is a contingent, an adequately contingent theory of imperialism to capture that. And I would agree with you that what Lenin did was to bolt, as it were, a heavier form of inevitability onto that. But it isn't, as it were, an inevitable claim that revolution will reside. It's a huge challenge to revolutionaries to face what are profound tensions that are indeed inevitably going to arise. And that surely is what we've seen in the last year in the United States. A clearer instance of that logic being played out is difficult to think of. Even explicit in the heads of the American planners. They know they're in that situation and formulate their problem in those terms. China's overtaking. We have a window of opportunity. There are things we may be able to do in the meantime. And, and I agree. There are tactics that we have for containing that. We have learned some lessons, but we may also misapply lessons. This idea that this is like the first Cold War and we can win it the way we won the Cold One, the first one, may be surely one of the misapplied lessons of history in this case. I have to jump in on this because you reminded me of something I, I wrote about in, in college and I've never really had an opportunity to talk about since then, which is the fact that Russia's attempt at industrialization in the late 19th century was the decisive factor. And I think the really interesting question is, you know, that I think was in many ways a contingent event that mm -hmm. you can attribute it to Sergei Witt, who ends up getting kicked out of, of power because the other conservative Russian aristocrats and don't like the implications of what it means for society. But the thing that is, I think, surprising, and given what we know of later history, and you make a great point of this in, in the deluge, is that, you know, there actually are a lot of natural economic and social complementarities between Germany and Russia, both before World War One and, and after World War One, And so the sort of surprising thing is that they didn't continue. And I think this is my own pet theory here, and I'd, I'd love to get your sense of this, but that you know, the fact that after the Franco-Prussian War, the French then made such a concerted effort, pushing changes within Russia that didn't necessarily have to have turned out the way they did. And then that ended up you know, leading to the, whether endogenous or whatever shifts you're talking about in the economic structure that then created an unbalanced situation, I think is really an interesting and worth exploring point that it wasn't inevitable that Russia would industrialize and that it would industrialize in a way that threatened Germany in that time frame. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, no. And, and the, the crucial moment, this is George Kennan's view of the late 19th century, is the fundamental, as it were, flaw in the structure of world power is the fact that the young Kaiser fires Bismarck and lets the alliance with Russia slip because the Franco-Prussian War had only been possible essentially because a nod and a wink from Petrograd told Berlin that they could get away with it. Because otherwise you would expect the Russians to intervene intermediately and to stop the Prussian bid to consolidate power in Germany. And the Crimean War of the 1850s had created a path dependency which Bismarck saw and exploited. But the condition of then having unified Germany was that you immediately reassured the Russians that this was not a hostile power. And the, the Kaiser 
I was trying to explain to undergraduates literally just minutes ago, like why this happened, because it's so perplexing. But the French, as soon as it does, seize the opportunity. And the result is Frankenstein, right? It's the, the liberal republic of Europe, indeed the world, the, the Statue of Liberty is in New York Harbour for a reason. It's the French virtue signalling to the Americans, look, we're on the same side here. And allied with everyone's pet autocratic nightmare, like the perpetrators of anti-Semitism, the pogrom people, the suppressors of liberty, the oppressors of the Poles, are somehow unified. And that, I add that as an extra loop of of sort of this weird, as you say, this blend of contingency and determination, because that blows the minds of the German Social Democrats. What way are they supposed to face? If they are the big bad guys in the July crisis for not having sabotaged the German war effort, which, as it were, any right-minded socialist internationalist would have demanded, their response is, so you want us to be invaded by the Cossacks, do you? Because you know those nice French people that you think are so modernising and democratic. Their main allies are the Cossacks. (laughs) So what are we supposed to do? Sit still and wait for the Cossacks to arrive? And that is the argument around which Berlin organises its diplomacy because it's crucial for Berlin to position the Russians as the people who started the war. Because if the Russians start the war, then the German Social Democrats have a reason to join in. So I completely agree with you that on top of, as it were, the contingency of economic development are then parked these other... But once you have cumulative causation going... And then you have major interests, as in the case of, say, American business interests, very interested in in the development of modern China. That's not by accident either, right? There's a political green light that goes on that says it's okay for you to do this. And then they do. That creates facts on the ground which change the balance globally. Then all of a sudden you've got some sort of economic necessity operating, especially if a bunch of people in Washington convince themselves it's economic necessity. So you find social theories of necessity being invoked contingently by actors as explanations to justify what they need to do. And Lenin is a a case in point. German Social Democrats invoking the Russian threat is another example. This is what makes history so interesting. This is actually genuinely historical as opposed to a sort of banal social scientific empiricism positivism. I'm sure your your pitch to your undergraduates 15 minutes ago won them over from political science, Adam. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they love it. So many things we could talk about. So There was a throwaway line in your book, Matt, about how in America, the suspicions post-World War One of international organizations echo uh, the way China looks at the rest of the world today. Could you talk a little bit about that? This is an interesting parallel. You, you have a situation where America is by far the decisive you know, factor in ending the war and becomes the predominant military and economic power. Economic power, actually, military is an interesting thing because essentially all that sort of vanishes and disappears so that by the time you get to World War II, it's, I think there are fewer divisions or something than like Bulgaria or something. But um, naval, though. The naval is correct. Cool. Na- yeah, that's, that's right. That's a very good point. But the international system that was then, there wasn't, re- there were efforts to reform, obviously, the international system. Wilson had led that coming up with the idea and there was the League of Nations being created. But at the same time, there was, I think, a concern among at least certain elements within the U.S. that because the Europeans were going to be predominant in you know governing those things, and because the Europeans were the ones who essentially demonstrated their sort of failure of being able to maintain their own affairs and creating this massive war in the first place, that the purpose of these institutions was essentially to hold down the major power, which was the United States. And so that was why you have this big reversal, even before Wilson leaves office, really, within the Senate and Congress. There's this, this sense of not wanting to be involved in this sort of discussions. And in fact, you can even, I think, go further and say that, and I think that this is a point that you've made, Adam, which is that one of the reasons why, starting with Wilson and then afterwards, that the American government was so insistent on getting debts repaid, including from the Allies, was precisely to limit their own power in being able to remilitarize. Really, the belief that you can't trust the Europeans, I think it's consistent with the idea that you don't want to be an international institution where you get outvoted by Europeans, which is what the League of Nations arguably would have been if the U.S. had joined. And so in the question talking about in China, I think it's obviously there's some important differences there. It's not as if we just had a major world where China emerged triumphant. But to the extent that China has become much more economically and militarily powerful and significant than it was, say, 30 or 40 years ago. And the fact that its power within certain international institutions has not grown commensurately. And that even if it did grow commensurately, it would still be outweighed by the combined, if, if they want to, the US, Europe, Japan, and so forth. Would, by any weighting system, would still outweigh China and any sort of international institution. You can understand why they would be reticent to want to submit. And I think that obviously there are a lot of differences in terms of how they've engaged with things. I think that you look at you know, China and the IMF, for example, or China and the UN, it's not the same as what the U.S. was doing in the 1920s. But I think it's not unreasonable to say that even if you are the single biggest power, if you think that you can get 
subsumed by an international organization, then you're going to be hesitant to give that organization too much authority over your own internal affairs, especially if you think that the plurality might be hostile to you. And so I think that's the commonality that we can draw. We could add as another wrinkle that, that another reason why a particular group of elites in a particular country might subscribe to various types of sort of sovereignty, impairing sovereignty, limiting strategy is that they don't trust other elites in the same country. So it's not so much a sort of realist nation on nation type logic as a struggle for power within nations. And I think we saw that operating very aggressively in the 1920s, where Germans, Japanese, Italians, inside each one of those countries, an inter-elite struggle is going on over the orientation of strategy, whether towards a kind of profitable conformity with an American and British-led world or a kind of gamble on national aggression. And I think some people rationalise Beijing's moves, which are often quite perplexing, in similar terms. In other words, there are elites within China that are more orientated towards a sort of almost an Italian strategy, a kind of vincolo or externo, using external constraint to achieve various types of power shift within your own country, the Draghi strategy, which is we're going to see how that plays out in the next year or two, as opposed to those who basically are adopting, I think, the, the logic that Matt is, is laying out very clearly, which is that, you know, if you're in a rising power, why would you allow yourself preemptively to be constrained? And conversely, you can all, we can all see Clinton coming. In other words, America, presumably, if it had it, would be building a global order that would contain the rising power of China. It didn't, America didn't go very far towards that move. But a rational strategist in China might anticipate that on the part of the Americans. In other words, that it would be building liberal international institutions systematically biased against the emergence of Chinese power. But I think the crucial thing is to differentiate, right? So I think we see China playing a rather skilled game in the UN, which are unweighted in global bodies, in a sense, and they can assemble coalitions there, which are quite powerful. BRI is part of that. They could build, and that was why the UN was also increasingly uncomfortable for America from the 1960s onwards, because as soon as you start multiplying post-colonial states, many of them are actually aggressively anti-American in their positioning. Whereas the IMF and institutions like that are shareholder weighted. And it's very difficult there for an up and coming power like China to really make much headway because they have to overcome an incumbent American veto that just can't be moved. Whereas in the UN, the Americans just are so sleepy in the UN as well. It's sort of ideological that they don't even appear to play the committee game in the UN with real energy, but on the IMF, they certainly do. So there's a huge difference there in different types of international organization. Yeah, I think that's a great point about the use of external constraints to influence domestic politics, which of course fits in with one of the themes of the book that thinking about you know countries as these discrete units of analysis is not helpful. Obviously, the European Union and the Euro have to be you know part of that conversation of like why did they get adopted and who is, who's in favor and who's against them is, is very much a situation. You mentioned Italy, and I think that's true for you know, Spain, Greece, a lot of these societies yeah. where the reason why they wanted to get in wasn't that like, everyone wanted to join. It was that there were certain particular groups within those countries that thought that it would be a way for them to push through the kinds of reforms they would have wanted but couldn't otherwise. I think with China, your point is also, I think, completely. We look at the, we don't have all the documentation, obviously, to really know for sure, but like the impression that I get from reading people who follow these things very closely is that the joining the WTO and that whole conversation with China, or for that matter, a lot of the stuff that was done in terms of the liberalization of sort of financial markets in the context of IMF rules and or requests or what have you is very much driven by internal conflicts and debates between people with different views of what would be best for China. And sometimes you have one faction winning or other factions winning. And again, we don't really have a great insight to what those debates really were looking like and how the decisions were made. But I think it's absolutely right to say that the extent that China is involved in a lot of international organizations in certain ways reflects competing interests within China, competing views about how the country should engage with the rest of the world and what's good for the people who live there. Yeah. And what's really shocking, I think, is that that Exactly. That debate is, after all, going on in Washington right now on the turn in American strategy towards China. One of the fundamental issues is, do we treat it as a block? If we do treat it as a block, how aggressive do we think it is? Or do we actually think the Chinese elite is split? And do you, as that anonymously authored paper, insisted treat Xi Jinping as a separate factor and then the rest of the power block differently? What I find disappointing about the current American debate is that it seems so impoverished in terms of its analytic so it's basically like bad King Xi against more processually orientated bureaucratic party. It's very personalized. It's very ideological. Whereas I think, as Matt is saying, the earlier conversations which were organized around socioeconomic interest groups 
and strategies of, of economic development for China were probably more fruitful. And there, I think, the conversation going on amongst Western China watchers over climate, I think, is much more interesting because there we actually are having a political economy conversation about whether Xi's leadership group and the folks who are pushing the decarbonisation agenda can prevail over the big utilities, the entrenched coal interests. Uh, that's the kind of thing where I think the conversation gets real. When it's a bunch of American liberals trying to figure out how bad they think King Xi is, I think that's an impoverished conversation. It's also a dangerous conversation because as a historian of the Third Reich, I cannot help thinking of appeasement. And I don't want to take a position on appeasing China. In fact, I'm generally speaking more in that kind of camp. But I think the the 1930s strategy with regard to Nazi Germany was explicitly modelled on the idea that you could leverage Goering away from Hitler, that Goering represented, as it were, the serious, sensible Germans. And a little bit of business talk with the Ruhr and Goering would probably get you where you need to go. So you actually have to have the right model of the regime first. If you have a bad model and then you apply this clever side-picking type strategy, it can massively backfire. Yeah. I'm just going to say, I feel like this is also a characteristic of some of the debates in the U.S. about the Soviet Union. In, oh, they're the liberals we want to reinforce. And it turns out you, know, you don't know who those people really are. Or maybe they actually, there's much less of a debate than you thought. Yeah. And why um, would you trust the liberals more? How well has democratization gone in Egypt as from the point of view of American strategy? I think the same analogy applies in spades to China. Like, why would we imagine that normatively one might prefer that for all sorts of extremely good reasons, obviously, starting with human rights and the rule of law. But from the point of view of grand strategic consideration, that seems like a really a gamble at incredibly long odds. The idea that democratisation is some sort of recipe for easier geopolitics for Western states. Stepping back maybe one and a half beats and thinking about the way that the Chinese government is doing this type of analysis and playing this game, thinking about the elites as well as the elites in comparison to the like broader society and their diplomatic arrangements. What I found remarkable is even though you've seen these poll numbers drop pretty spectacularly over the course of 2020 for how 50, 60 countries that Pew is doing this poll in. 20% more people in basically all these countries dislike China, think China is a threat, however you want to phrase it. But you still see at the UN... 50 Muslim nations voting to say that we, we approve of what's happening in Xinjiang and we think what you're doing is great. And at some point, this tips, right? And it clearly tipped in the US. We're playing the elite game and talking to Stephen Schwartzman and Ray Dalio about how cooperation is really important. That was able to run a very long road. But we've mm-hmm. clearly reached the end of that, at least at a certain level. And following the extent to which elites will catch up or, or start to align more with where their populations are with respect to China in countries besides the U.S. is a fascinating thing to watch. And watching also the Chinese government understand and process that or adjust or not will be definitely one to follow in the next few years. Which is why vaccines are so utterly fascinating, right? Because because that's literally putting uh, your faith in China in your arm. You are literally putting your body into the geopolitical arena and saying, you know what, I may not like them very much, but you know, Chile has achieved this remarkable vaccination rate that it has by being part of the original Chinese phase three trials. Their scientists were all over the vaccine. They know it pretty well. They trust it. And they've now got an exemplary vaccination rate by any standards, let alone a middle income country. Given the botched geopolitics of vaccines in the West, that is going to be an increasingly prevalent issue. Now, I'm not saying that there isn't overlap, because we also have plenty of evidence of resistance, both to Russian and Chinese vaccines on exactly the grounds that you're citing. But in the end, if the West fails as badly as it does on the ground on issues like that, we hand the game to the Chinese. It's not just their cheap smartphones that we love. Because we love, you know, large parts of the world just basically can't live without those. But also it's the thing that saved my grandmother. That's going to make a difference. And, and, but it's not without the same dimensions. It's also about a sort of elite alignment, but it's a rather different elite alignment. It's not Schwartzman's. It's the public health authorities of these areas. It builds trust in really interesting ways. And it opens up an entirely new arena, which I think the West should not be too insouciant about. We should be aware of the difference this is making. I also wonder to what extent, and this is you know more speculative, but to the extent that you talk about there are a lot of countries that you mentioned, the many Muslim nations at the UN. And most of those countries are not democracies. And so I wonder to what extent that is also helpful mm-hmm. from the Chinese PR perspective. As you were saying, if, if you know the Communist Party there has a lot of practice engaging with elites, 
And not necessarily with It's Drew's. Indonesia, it's Malaysia, it's not just your Gulf nations, which have really bit their tongue on this sort of thing. But the terrorism thing works, right? You can fashion all sorts of alignments. It's a bit like the Russians who never really understood why we didn't align with them over Chechnya. If you regard all of those justifications as something other than merely boilerplate, and I think there's every reason to think that they are basically boilerplate, but if you, as it were, trying to bolt bits of boilerplate together... If you're looking for an excuse to align, that would be one way of doing it. But I think it's interesting because you have a sort of liberal tipping point story I'm hearing. In other words, as it were, you can only go so far if the groundswell of opinion on China is really this negative. I think the thing you have to ask, this is why the vaccines are so interesting, is salience. Right? It's all very well for Pew to go around the world and ask this question of people, how do they feel about China? Well, they feel less bad about it. If you ask them, would you buy a Chinese smartphone if it's notably cheaper than Samsung? Do you love TikTok? The balance of argument shifts quite dramatically. I think the sentiment move is huge and it's so big you can't very well ignore it. But I think it has to be tested against material entanglements, which are, of course, at some level, most profitable for the global elites, but also go quite deep at this point. Yeah, And you're right, Adam, in that what can be a higher watermark than a global pandemic when it comes to this sort of stuff? And maybe it'll play out on a longer time horizon. But those numbers, I, w- I would bet on those numbers becoming more favorable as opposed to less favorable sitting here yeah. in, uh, in February 2021. And there's also, I think the crucial thing is that, and this goes back to our earlier 20s thing, is that China is a model for a kind of sovereignty, right? And it it, it acts in a way which is quite interestingly sovereignty enhancing. They've made Ethiopia and Ethiopian airlines into their hub for logistics for the vaccine for the entire sub-Saharan African continent. Now, that makes Ethiopia, a whole bunch of people in Ethiopia in different walks of life, really pleased, right? Because they've got these airplanes. We know Boeing sold them shitty aircraft. Now they've turned these aircraft into something that will deliver healthcare for the entire healthcare system of sub-Saharan Africa, courtesy of cooperation with the Chinese. Those sorts of amplifier effects are, are, are very interesting. And China has a track record of that kind of, as it were, sovereignty to sovereignty enhancing logics. We, we spend a lot of time on debt imperialism and all of that kind of side of things. But there is a reverse salient to that, which is this cumulative enhancement. Adam, you brought up climate, and I want to take us back to that. What do you two think about climate tariffs? I understand the logic for the carbon border adjustment tax that the European Union is considering. Basically, the idea is that if you have a regulation that says that, for example, either your companies have to pay to offset the cost of carbon emissions, or you just have rules that you expect will force them to make investments and, and engage in processes to reduce their carbon emissions when they're you know either making steel or concrete or anything else. That will increase their costs, and therefore they'll probably pass those costs on to consumers. And it would be unfair to have those products compete with products imported from countries that don't have the same set of rules. And that makes sense. The logic of that is straightforward. I think the interesting question, I remember writing about this a few years ago back when I was at the FT, which is why would you not apply that logic to a lot of other kind of rules we think that are good for either the world or for, for people, but that you don't have those adjustments? And you could have labor standard adjustments. You could have other environmental regulation adjustments, right? There's, there, there are forms of pollution that are harmful other than carbon emissions. And so there are a whole lot of things you can imagine doing in the, in the ground. And I, I don't think the, the challenge seems to me to be how do you actually calibrate that and set it up? properly. And then there's a whole separate issue, of course, which is one of the points we make in our book is that the relationship between tariffs and trade is not straightforward. You can put tariffs on you know, the products of an individual country and you will reduce your imports from that country, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the total amount of exports from that country will go down or that your total imports will go down. We saw that very clearly in the US with China in the past few years. So there's also a question of what the actual impact of the tariffs would be, especially if you expect some sort of exchange rate adjustments to offset things. But in principle, it makes sense. In practice, that's where the question I think becomes more challenging. But in principle, it seems like the reasonable thing to do. And if you think about historically, one of the criticisms people made of you know climate regulations is that it would basically force deindustrialization and give a free lunch to other countries that don't sign up for it. This would be the natural way to address that. And we saw that being an issue in the past 10, 20 years in the United States. It seems like logical that people would want to come up with some fix. I think the, the danger here is not to have a, a, an American conversation about this, which is hypothetical, right? Because America invented carbon pricing. The Europeans are the only people who actually implemented it on a large scale. America's Environmental Defense Fund, the preeminent neoliberal big green lobbyists who pioneered the model, transported it to the EU. The EU bit on it, adopted the system, created at huge cost politically and bureaucratically a emissions trading system, launched it in 2005, and it was a bust. And it failed repeatedly because any other monetary system, basically, you have to make the certificates scarce for them to be worth anything. 
But the remarkable thing that's happened in the last year or two is that all of a sudden the emissions trading system in Europe is really beginning to bite. And so the last time I looked, I think a ton of carbon is trading at $35. I think maybe it's even headed to 40 And at that point, a whole range of heavy industrial processes, carbon-intensive electricity generation become non-viable, right? The UN estimates that if we were serious about decarbonisation, we would set the carbon price at that level right now. And then we would hike it progressively up to 80, 100, 120. The Europeans are on that track. Furthermore, there's lots of serious money in that market now, and they are driving it up. So there's massive investment of speculative money into the European carbon market on the premise that the European politicians are serious now about Paris. They're actually going to do it. And so this is a safe one-way bet, basically, on a constantly appreciating currency. You can literally put money in now. You're more or less guaranteed it will double or triple in price in the next five to 10 years. In a world of low interest rates, that looks like a good bid. That now is beginning to have practical consequences for European business because the deal, political deals around the ETS were done on the premise, essentially, that at some point there would be carbon adjustment when this begins to bite. So the reason why it's worth emphasizing this, because in America, the conversation about green economic policy has gone totally the opposite direction, right? Because the, the Democrats made a botched effort to introduce carbon pricing in 2009 and failed. So now America doesn't talk about this anymore, except hypothetically. And as a global problem, there are local markets. There's a Californian one, but it's small by comparison with the one in Europe. And the other thing that's happened is the Chinese have actually introduced the carbon pricing system in China, modelled on the European example. So we can sit here in the US and have this conversation in hypothetical terms. If you're in the business of metal bashing in either Europe or the China right now, you have to be having this conversation. It's non-optional because the price increases are now getting really quite serious to the point of being significant for location decisions, which is why the Europeans put it on the agenda in their, their talks with Beijing last summer. They used it as a threat weapon. And if you talk to people in Brussels and in Paris, Berlin, they're convinced that she made his promise to decarbonize in September, in part because business interests and economic planners in China realize the Europeans may be serious about this. And China has its own mechanism. Because another way of solving this problem would be to integrate carbon pricing mechanisms at either end of the Eurasian landmass, and then you wouldn't need the tariffs. And since China and Europe are each other's leading trading partners, not the United States, but China and Europe, especially for manufactured goods, whereas the Chinese buy commodities from the United States in large part. Uh, the logic here is it's naive to imagine that we can just sit here and say hypothetically it's a good idea because in Europe and China it's just too concrete. Will it be easy to do? No, not necessarily. And can they make it compatible with WTO? Maybe. But they're going to have to do it, I think. And it's, you cannot in Europe right now solve the political economy of climate policy without addressing this issue because it's no longer hypothetical it's no longer for the future it's immediately active and this pressure is just going to get worse and worse and worse uh, over time let's do uh policy proposal policy proposal rapid fire round matt what is bancor and why should we bring it back bancor was an idea that just came up with during the Bretton Woods conference and it was the idea that that all international transactions or trade would be settled in an international currency managed by an international clearing bank. And the idea was that this would prevent massive imbalances in, in trade and financial flows because the central international clearing bank would be in charge of the issuance of the bank or that all trade would be managed through it. So some countries, a central bank, whatever, would then transact with this bank. And you weren't allowed to have either too much deposits or too much overdrafts. And so there'd be various penalties and incentives to discourage those things and lead to adjustments. So the appeal of this is that if you're concerned about these sort of systematic imbalances, one of the things we talk about a lot in the book is that certain societies, for various reasons, just don't spend enough domestically. They produce a lot, but don't necessarily spend enough domestically. That's bad for the people who live there. It's also bad for people in the rest of the world, or it can be. This is a kind of mechanism that would prevent that from recurring, because the imbalances that we talk about in the book are only possible because the entities in those countries, in those societies are able to continue to accumulate financial assets outside um, their country and the rest of the world. And if that were not possible, because all these transactions um, were managed through the central clearing bank and you have a sort of cap on your foreign deposits, as it were, you'd have to have some kind of adjustment, ideally by spending more at home and raising your own living standards. Implementation of this would obviously be challenge, but this is something that Keynes is a smart person. He thought this was a, a doable prospect. Actually, Mark Carney recently, a couple of years ago, mentioned something similar. There are a lot of people 
both then and today, we think the current system has a lot of serious flaws and instability. And Mark Carney basically made the point that there should be a different kind of international currency. If everything is done in dollars, that creates a lot of weird burdens for people who use dollars primarily for only domestic needs. So it creates a lot of distortions in the United States, domestic, both real and financial economic systems. And so ideally, you'd want to distribute that burden to some sort of other entity outside the U.S., not in any particular country at all, but just elsewhere. Adam, is Matt crazy? <laughs> no, as he says, he speaks through a long line of people who've looked at some of the fundamental imbalances in the global economy and come to this conclusion. I imagine the way you might get there would be by way of like digital central bank currency, maybe it would be the, like some sort of merger of digital central bank currencies. And then I guess the other sort of practical approach that people were taking with those efforts for 2008 for the IMF to arbitrate mutual observation of current account imbalances and balance of payments imbalances and we know how that that went it was like the political hot potato du jour it's a little bit like trying to govern the eurozone but even worse because you basically have to pillory the Germans and the Dutch for having these grotesque current account surpluses which they don't want to hear and the Americans will get lectured for having a huge imbalance which they don't want to hear and then we're back to the question of power but I think that will be the route that one would go towards is some sort of... And I think in monetary policy, there is a sufficiently closed elite, sufficiently insulated from political pressures for it to be possible to have a conversation about the movement of currencies and the movement of interest rates, which is tantamount to something like this. But as we know, it's a very blunt instrument which has only partial effectiveness. But for Mario Draghi and Janet Yellen to have liaised over quantitative easing in 2015, 2016 doesn't strike me as an entirely impossible proposition. Janet Yellen will go to her grave denying that she ever reached any understanding with the People's Bank of China about American interest rate policy in that period, which shows you how sensitive it is. And she may, of course, I'm sure she's right. In other words, there was no understanding, but there was sure as hell a tacit understanding between the Fed and the People's Bank of China about what was necessary at that moment. So at that level, this kind of elite coordination, I think, is, is probably something close to reality. But the kind of mechanical, censorious, rule-imposing, full-body, all-instruments, macro-coordination that Keynes envisioned, has to say, this was a vision launched by one of the staunchest defenders of the British Empire into the face of national and imperial decline, hoping to constrain the rising Americans. If you read the British papers on the topic, it's perfectly clear what's at stake here. It's bind the Americans in, but limit their discretion. It's a little bit like the NATO project. You keep the Germans down, the Russians out, and the Americans in. And those kind of logics emerge from declining imperial positions where discretion is no longer the principal, in uh, the principal interest. Oh, man, we only have two minutes. Matt, do five sentences on strategic Shiraz Reserve. Sure. If you are concerned that your allies or neutral countries can be harmed economically by politically motivated boycotts of their products, then you can potentially offset some of the impact by committing to buy as many of those products to offset the impact of the boycott which might have the salutary effect of discouraging a boycott in the first place because whatever entity would be considering it would realize that it would have limited actual effect on the desired target. So in the case of Shiraz, China basically blocking all Australian wine imports, the U.S. simply just bought wine futures or put them in storage or what have you. Australian vintners would be fine. The impact on the Australian economy and domestic politics would be as if nothing had happened. Chinese consumers might think this is a stupid policy on the part of their government, there might be some switch and then you'd effectively insulate Australia from the impact. And you can imagine for other societies and other products as well. I think taking the wine business out of harm's way and modern geopolitics is, is, is an absolutely outstanding suggestion. Right now, my heart goes out to all the folks in Britain who are facing a, a catastrophic historic rupture of the historically formed relationship between the city of London and England and Britain as a whole and Bordeaux. And it was British demand that essentially created the modern wine industry in France as we know it all the way of modern, it goes all the way back to the medieval period, in fact. And the ghastly paperwork nightmares of Brexit actually make it increasingly difficult for small batch producers to import efficiently to the UK. So, so anything that separates the essential elements of cultured existence from the vicissitudes of the geopolitics has my vote. This sounds like a great idea. So there, there is, in fact, a, there's a, a sort of ad hoc, slightly apocryphal theory of the Industrial Revolution, which is that 
The colonial import that really mattered was not sugar, the ghost acreage type story, but it was tea and then coffee because it stopped the British boozing. So basically, you know, the Brits had spent most of the medieval period and the early modern period drunk on imported French wine, which they were buying with wool exports. And the advent of tea created the foundations for the famous Industrious Revolution because people sobered up. Britain came out of its long, centuries-long hangover and discovered the possibilities of commerce and capitalism and manufacturing. This Brexit interruption of the wine trade is a, is a historic break. Some of the oldest, most you know, impressive, truly historic wine cellars in the world are in the city of London, the really ancient English institutions which have been buying since really since the medieval period. And if you think about transport, right, in the medieval period and the early modern period, it was far easier to transport by sea and by river than it was by land. So it was much easier to ship a fine bottle of wine from Bordeaux to London than it was to ship it to Paris, because you'd have to carry it over land. Whereas, you know, you stick it in a boat in Bordeaux, you're in London in two, three days in a, in a medieval fast ship. Yeah, no, it's, a, it's all along that coastline, Sherry, Port, it's all shaped by that huge, the, the hub, a bit like in Denmark, where they grow rich, basically producing the English breakfast, pigs and beef and um, butter and milk. I wish we could do this for two hours, but unfortunately, Adam has not turned on paid subscriptions to his Substack yet, even though he most certainly has the fan base to uh, replace his professorship and be free of any future faculty meetings. But until that day, thank you two so much for joining us again on China Talk. Cheers. They say being a parent is a full-time job, but I already have one of those. Luckily, I use Instacart to help me order everything I need while I'm stuck in meetings all day. So while Instacart is helping me get groceries, snacks for school lunches, and something for at-home happy hour, I get more time back to juggle my day job and my mom job. 
Save time by downloading the Instacart app or visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first order using the code INGREDIENTS22. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $10. Delivery subject to availability. Additional terms apply.